You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, before we get going, this is Aaron. I'm one of the co-hosts of this show, and I have another show called Stoner. It's interviews with interesting, creative, productive people about their relationship with marijuana. We're just finishing up the first season now, and it's been really interesting. So if that sounds interesting to you, please subscribe. Just search Stoner in the podcatcher of your choice. Here's the show. Hello, and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I am Evan Ratliff from Atavist. I am joined by Max Linsky, Aaron Lammer from Longform. Hey, guys. Hey. Hey, you guys. It's an unseasonably hot day in the studio. Yeah, it's like the old days. We've been reduced to talking about weather. (laughs) (laughs) That's all we got. Uh, Who's on the show this week? Uh, This week, I spoke to Jelani Cobb, Dr. Jelani Cobb, I like to say, because he does have a PhD, and I respect the work that goes into a PhD. And that's actually part of the reason I wanted to talk to him. Is he the first doctor who's been on the show? It can't be. There has to be someone else who has a... Doctor wow. degree who's this been is, on the show. This is a this is a real braid quiz. Try <laughs> and go through all two hundred and fifty and see if you can. I will say I will use this as an opportunity to reiterate the uh, email I've sent many times to Doctor Atul Gawande to come on the show. Ooh. Oh yeah, he could. You now he could be the second you, doctor. You could have been the first show a doctor on the show. Atul, you could have. You could have. So one of the reasons I wanted to talk to Jelani is that. Uh, he's currently writing for The New Yorker, but he's also a historian. So a lot of what he writes is just really, it's based on a deeper level of knowledge about American history. I think his commentary is pretty essential right now with a lot of people throwing around takes on everything under the sun related to politics and race. And his are really, really grounded in a long-term study of a lot of this stuff. So he's also really fun to talk to. He's got a lot of great aspects to what he's done. For people listening at home, Evan was punching his fist with each of those points. That's right. <laughs> I'm serious about this one. Um, Aaron, if you wanted to make a point. Well, for some people, it's about slapping your own hand. For other people, it can be achieved with email. The best way to send that email is with MailChimp. It's the, it's the Evan hand slap of corporate communication. They do it better. They do it easier. And I trust them. So uh, thanks to MailChimp. Now here's Evan Ratliff with Jelani Cobb. Dr. Cobb, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. We met some years ago. Mm-hmm. I was thinking back on it. We had lunch maybe going on five, oh, five, God, was that years, five ago? years ago. Yeah. And it feels like 
a different era. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, everything's a different era, but I think you were just starting at the New Yorker yeah. at that time. Mm-hmm. Barack Obama was president. Mm-hmm. It was an entirely different political climate. Yeah. And that's part of why I wanted to talk to you. I think right now the work you're doing has so much relevance, has so much importance, not just because of what it's about, but because of the context in which you can write because mm-hmm. you have a historical background as well as a journalistic approach. Mm-hmm. And that I find that really, really intriguing. And as part of that, I wanted to sort of like set some of the context for who you are and why mm-hmm. you ended up in that oh, spot. Cool. Yeah. Um, and you did some of this yourself in this piece about Jamaica High School, and I kind of wanted mm-hmm. to start there. Sure. I'll add one quick thing about uh, that meeting, which we uh, went to lunch at Jacob's Pickle uh, uh-huh. That's uh, restaurant, right. which is no longer there. Really? And No. Oh, I never uh, go up there. And, and the interesting thing is that it's almost metaphorical. Like, the <laughs> physical landscape is different uh, from when we first met. And, right. And as is the social and political one uh, significantly. So, yeah. Yeah. So... You grew up in Queens. Mm-hmm. You went to Jamaica High, which is described in this article. Mm-hmm. And I mean, in a lot of your work, you sort of drop in some autobiographical details, like they filter in in different ways. And in that mm-hmm. piece in particular was more about you. And you describe how when you were in high school there, what really set you on a better academic track was you got fascinated with science, mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. physics. Mm-hmm. And first of all, why didn't you end up as a physicist? <laughs> You know, it's funny because uh, the school put a lot of energy into trying to cultivate young scientists, too. And I took part in a summer uh, enrichment program at City College. And, you know, we did all this science education. And But I don't know. I think I always felt like my heart was in the humanities. English and history were the things, even in high school, that most appealed to me. And I think that history had this one virtue. And... That is that history had this explanatory power about the world that I was inhabiting and that we're all inhabiting. That we walk out into the world in the morning and we encounter any number of circumstances or problems or difficulties or social issues. And, you know, this is the environment that we're surrounded by. And it's ambient. It's unnoticeable. This is the world we live in. But history had the capacity to explain how we got here, why we had to confront them at this particular moment in our lives. If we were talking about, you know, the war on terror or uh, ISIS or our involvement in the Middle East or any of these things that are current issues, immigration, and those are just the kind of huge issues, not to mention the daily kind of personal things. And there was a historical context for all of them. And I've never stopped being fascinated by understanding that. Do you find that context and understanding that history to be something that provides comfort? Because I I see the flip side of that with a lot, particularly things that are going on now in the political sphere or just in the country, that it could also be very demoralizing because Mm -hmm. you see the same things happening over and over again. Or you see things that, whether it's police brutality or what happened in Charlottesville, that because they have these historical antecedents, that could actually make you feel like history just repeats itself in these horrible ways. Yeah, I think that when you interact with, you know, lots of professional historians, I think there's a pretty sizable quorum of people who are pessimists about these things. But I'm not pessimistic because, one, I think that we're better off by 
at least having the record and being able to understand the patterns than we would be if we were just kind of clawing around in the dark. Mm. And there's no guarantee that, you know, those things will change. But I think that, you know, I'm involved in two enterprises that require a fundamental degree of optimism, and that's writing and teaching. Uh, that if you don't believe that education or access to more information can change the way people look at the world and therefore how they act, then there's really no need to do either of those things. But also, I mean, we don't change <laughs> very easily. Mm-hmm. I think societies uh, like people, it's possible for them to change, but it's usually fairly difficult. And you fall back into old habits probably several times before you break them definitively. You had this interest in history from a pretty young age. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, the other sort of like CV data points I know about you are that you went to Howard mm-hmm. and then that you at some point landed at City Paper in yeah, Washington, Washington, which City Paper. seems mm-hmm. to have incubated like a mm-hmm. pretty extraordinary array of mm-hmm. journalists, particularly with a certain generation. But how did mm-hmm. that come about? So when I went to Howard, I was influenced by a teammate of mine on the baseball team in high school. And both of his parents had gone to Howard. And his father encouraged me to go. And you know, Howard is a historically black institution in Washington, D.C. And I didn't know anything, really, about the tradition <laughs> of black colleges. I was the first one in my family to go to college. And I thought, this sounds reasonable, <laughs> basically. <laughs> And, I mean, it's like throwing a dart in a dark room and then hitting the bullseye because I could have wound up at a lot of different places, but I think that Howard wound up being so fundamental to who I am and how I look at the world that I think that I got it right in choosing them. And so, you know, there I was surrounded by this really dynamic group of young people and who were thinking about the world and interested in writing and in different kinds of formats and we kind of formed a little cohort of us who had the same interests. And and so I started out at a small uh, paper, alternative paper called One, um, that was short-lived. And then, in D.C.? In D.C., okay. yeah. And then uh, I went from there to the Washington City paper. First up, I did not know about alternative papers kind of working as a feeder system or uh, farm teams for talent that winds up at much bigger places. And then as I kind of went along, I realized that people had all of these relationships that went back to these institutions where they first started out. Mm-hmm. The regional magazines and the alternative papers, uh, you know, the same sorts of relationships. And um, of course, ta Coates at The Atlantic, who was my uh, colleague, uh, both at Howard and at the Washington City Paper. And Did you know him in college? Yeah, he was part of that group uh, that I made oh, reference wow. to, kind of people who were interested in writing and, and history and literature and politics. and Some kind know. of group. Who else was in that group? Yeah, um, my friend Joel Diaz Porter, uh, who was a poet and was also known as DJ Renegade, and another friend of mine, Kenneth Carroll, who's a, a poet as well, and um, Brian Gilmore, who's a law professor now at the University of Michigan, but also a poet. And at that point, I was kind of the odd man out because I was not writing poetry. Um, And so I think I was complaining that essayists, unlike poets, essayists never have groupies. But but in any case, the Washington City paper was an interesting outlet because, you know, this is Washington, D.C. in the early 1990s and early mid-1990s. 
And the paper had this very long-standing, terse relationship with black Washington, D.C. Mm. And, you know, the paper was almost entirely white. Uh, the city at that point was probably 70 or so percent black. And the paper had this very, the kind of default tone was kind of smug, kind of blending over into snide. And, uh, you know, there's a kind of arch tone to the commentary there. And for any writer, especially someone who was kind of interested in writing with a, you know, sardonic edge, a mayor who's smoking crack, that's gold. It's irresistible, <laughs> yeah. right? Who could who could give that up? But here it became complicated though, because the city had a very different relationship to Marion Barry. Mm-hmm. And I came to understand that as I spent more time in Washington, D.C. Uh, one, he had been this person who was intimately involved in the civil rights movement, uh, who had put his neck on the line, you know, in places where he could have gotten seriously hurt and, you know, civil rights demonstrations. And uh, he had come out of that tradition. And, you know, the second is that he was a populist figure in D.C. And people saw him very much as an extension of themselves. And so in writing about Barry in this way that kind of held him up to ridicule, especially in an outlet that didn't have uh, very many black uh, voices there, it seemed as if people were, by extension, holding up the entire community to ridicule. Mm. And so I dropped in the middle of that. And it was kind of David Carr, who the late David Carr came in as the editor of the Washington City Paper. And he did something that I regard with a great deal of respect and probably always will, which is that he set out to diversify the newspaper. But he didn't do it out of a sort of touchy-feely liberal ethos. He did it because he thought there were stories that he wasn't getting, and mm-hmm. he wanted those stories. And therefore, he wanted the people who could get him those stories. And people who were in other communities, who knew other things, who had different relationships to the city and different sources and so on. And I think at one point he said, in typical David kind of coarse insight, we have to get some of those. In referring to like more writers of color, more black <laughs> really? people. Um, and that was the entree that, that kind of brought that group of people into the city paper. And did you find that you could thrive in that environment or mm-hmm. that you were still pushing up against the sort of traditions and strictures that were in a place like that? Both, actually. Uh-huh. One is that Carr was very demanding and he wanted us to live up to his expectations, which I thought was really, really good. Like journalistic Journalistically. And... The other is I think there were people who had never worked with black writers before. And, you know, interestingly, I think years later, one of uh, the editors said that he had worried because he grew up in an environment with people who were not forward thinking on issues of race. (laughs) And he had been worried that that would bleed over into his relationship with this kind of new crop of black writers. And, you know, I told him, I was like, actually, you were very instrumental in, you know, me developing. And I pointed out a piece that I had done that really I had just kind of phoned it in. And he uh, shot it down. (laughs) And and I said, that was actually the best thing that you could have done because I had to go back and actually work on that piece. Yeah. And then it ran as something that I could be proud of. And, And so I think the city paper, like, no place is perfect, but... It was certainly far more good than bad, Mm -hmm. in my experience. And did that 
feel like it launched you into further journalistic career or did you mm -hmm. go the PhD route right after that? Yeah, so I uh, had been writing for alternative papers in DC and kind of small outlets. And then I left and went to graduate school at Rutgers. I started graduate school, a PhD program in American history. And then the first summer, my first summer in graduate school, I went to DC and I worked at the city paper for that summer. Uh, I see. So I think if I went back, you know, to when I was a senior at Howard, I was an English major and a history minor, and I had this conundrum about whether or not I was going to pursue history and be an academic or whether I was going to pursue journalism and, you know, specifically writing, the writing part of it. And I still haven't figured that out. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so I was really working in both of those tracks. And it took me the longest time to realize that, one, I didn't have to choose, and two, that they could inform each other, mm -hmm. uh, that the history could contextualize the journalism, and the journalism could point to the ultimate implications of the history. Yeah, I wondered if you had looked at a sort of journalism career and wondered, like, how stable it was vis-a-vis -vis mm -hmm. getting a peach. Like, if there was a financial determination or if it was just, like, interests that were pulling you in different directions. No, but I will tell you there was a calculation. I wasn't thinking about the stability of you know, journalism as a field, but I knew that I wanted to write on the more analytical commentary side of journalism and you know I was reading The Atlantic and then you know Harper's which was a really had a really big footprint at that point and people were writing uh, these incredible pieces of literary journalism uh, that were sharp and analytical and in, kind of broadly informed and I knew that that was the kind of writing that I wanted to do I also didn't think that quite frankly as a young black aspiring writer, I was going to walk in the door like that. Mm. And uh, I thought that if I had a doctorate degree, it would give me entree to areas that would be closed otherwise. And because, you know, we had lots of, no shortage of voices, especially on matters of race, whether they were informed, well-informed or poorly informed. And it was like middle-aged white guys who were just kind of holding forth on these platforms. And, you know, that was in the New Republic and Everywhere, basically, the, all the, the kind of cornerstone areas of journalism now, mm -hmm. especially commentary-oriented journalism. And I thought that if I was going to crack into that world, I was going to need something else to speak on my behalf. So you show up and wave your PhD at them and say, <laughs> say no to this. Yeah, I wouldn't wave it, but I would just <laughs> kind of have it in my back pocket, you know. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to put Evan and Jelani on hold for just a second to tell you about some sponsors who are uh, making the program possible this week. Here's something to chew on. Many recent studies suggest that having good oral health impacts your overall health, and uh, yet most of us don't brush our teeth properly. You can start brushing better today. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about teeth brushing lately. I have a uh, small person who lives in my house. He recently acquired teeth, and so I've been having to uh, teach him how to brush those teeth. And uh, toothbrush can be hard, but it doesn't have to be. And that's why you should try Quip. 
Quip is the new company that is refreshing the way that people brush their teeth. Starting at just 25 bucks, Quip is an electric toothbrush that packs premium vibration and timer features into an ultra-slim design that's half the cost of bulkier brushes. It's basically like Apple designed a toothbrush just without the big price tag. You can even subscribe to receive new brush heads on a dentist-recommended three-month plan for just 5 bucks, including free shipping. You have to see it and brush with it yourself. Quip is backed by leading dentists and was named one of Time Magazine's best inventions of 2016. Plus, they even won a 2016 GQ Grooming Award and made it to Oprah's 2017 New Year's O-List. They won all the magazine-related toothbrush awards. So right now, here's what I recommend you do. Go to getquip.com longform. You'll get your first refill pack free when you buy a Quip Electric toothbrush. Again, that's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash longform, G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash longform. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. Support for today's show also comes from Audible. Audible's content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, and business information providers, uh, including The New Yorker magazine. I don't know if you knew this. You can listen to The New Yorker out loud every week on Audible. Amazing. Unlike a streaming or rental service, with Audible, you own all your own books, so you can access them anywhere, anytime, from almost any device, including your iPhone, iPad, Android, Amazon, Fire, Windows Phone. Plus, they've got the great listen guarantee, so if you don't like the title you've picked, you can swap it out for a new one. No questions asked. Not to mention Audible Channels. Do you know about Audible Channels? They give you a collection of exclusive original short stories and comedy, all stuff you can't find anywhere else, so you always have something new to listen to. Uh, I use Audible all the time. I love listening to audiobooks because I don't always have the time and the energy to read at night when I should, but I listen to them on the way to work. I can listen on the train. I get off the train. I have a sizable walk to the office. I keep listening to my audiobooks, all thanks to Audible. You should try it too. Get a free audiobook and a 30-day trial at www.audible.com slash longform. Again, that's audible.com slash longform. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. And let's get back to Jelani and Evan. There also seems to have been an era in there, maybe when you were finishing your doctorate. I saw a lot of pieces. I went back and read some of this stuff like on <coughs> Nexus from these sort of like like a magazine called The Progressive mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then there's a magazine from the NAACP that you mm-hmm. wrote for a little Crisis, bit. Yeah. yeah, which I was wondering how that sort of incubated your style and outlook if it did writing in, not that these are like totally obscure publications, but they're like a little bit out of the spotlight of mm-hmm. sort of like the national conversation of what you're doing now that's mm-hmm. like everything gets held up to this uh, That's right. You know, do you know uh, Ralph Riley, um, the sports writer, late Ralph Riley, told me something when I was twenty-five or so, and he was so right. <laughs> he said, "One, that I should never fall in love with anything that I had written, and that I should always have an eye toward being critical, you know, about something I wrote and how could it be better and so on." And the second thing he told me was, "You won't get there overnight, and believe me, you don't want to." And I, mm. I, I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't get it when he told me that. I was like, why would I not want to get there overnight? I want to do everything I can, you know. Now I'm like, thank God I didn't get there overnight because there's so much that I would have to 
so much writing that I would have to explain, you know, <laughs> my evolving thinking. And I think that is really one thing for, for young people now because of social media and the broad number of platforms that exist is that you can kind of jump into the fray before you are really ready to jump into the fray mm-hmm. or at a point where it might still be better for you to sharpen your sword a little bit before you go into battle. And so that was what those publications gave me the chance to do where I could kind of test out things. And it was also a little bit more flexibility in terms of style when you're in smaller outlets. Uh, if you don't really have a house style, then you can go for you know what you really want to say and the way that you want to say it a little bit more. I think there's probably mm-hmm. more freedom in that regard. And as, especially as a young person, I was trying to figure out what my voice sounded like that was helpful. Yeah. During that sort of era, like, previous to like coming to the New Yorker and writing for them a lot more. I mean, you were writing for the Post and mm-hmm. reviewing books. You were doing mm-hmm. all, all sorts of things from mm-hmm. what I could tell. But you also wrote some personal, like very personal mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. essays. Mm-hmm. And there was one in particular called My Daughter Once Removed mm-hmm. that's very powerful. And one thing I wondered about it as soon as I read it was, would you write this now? No. Why not? Uh, So I wrote that essay, and it's in my collection of my short nonfiction, and uh, it was about the ambiguity in in my relationship with my stepdaughter after her mother and I divorced, and wondering if I'd be able to remain in her life in a way that was still foundational, and uh, it turned out that we did. You know, we're still very close, and, you know, she was at my house yesterday, as a matter of fact, and... Yeah, I wouldn't write that piece now because now I'm almost allergic to the first person. Mm. And it's a response to the social media landscape that we have. You know, for one, writing something in the first person in, I think, 2001, 2000 was when I wrote that piece. It was very different. People would read it and they might comment on it for a little while and then it you know, disappears. Mm-hmm. Now it's something that kind of would circulate and it would kind of float around on the internet forever. And when you are in the midst of a discussion about Charlottesville or something, it might just kind of pop up in that conversation as well. And I'm much more, I think, reticent to talk about myself in print than I was before. Mm-hmm. As a matter of, on social media... There's no nothing about me, you know, in yeah. my personal life. I remember someone was um, on Twitter, and it was like kind of amusing because this guy was wondering if I was gay or straight, and there was nothing to indicate anything about my like my life in in my social media profile. And I was kind of like, great, yeah, good. <laughs> you know, it's like people know I'm black. It's kind of hard to get around <laughs> that. But anything else about me, I really want that to be as enigmatic as possible. I mean, I'm kind of sad to hear you say that you wouldn't write that, partly because mm-hmm. I think going back and reading all of these pieces over the years, mm-hmm. I found all these biographical snippets. And then mm-hmm. by the end of it, I thought, like, Jelani should write a memoir. Because like, <laughs> little things drop uh-huh. in. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I have collected a sum, but not as much as I would like to, um, oral history from my family members. Mm. And then realized that I had to kind of contribute to you know this archive you know myself and so I've been talking into a microphone about some of these things and so on but you know whether that turns into anything I don't know but maybe yeah I would not rule it out well one question related to that sort of thing your family 
were they were part of the Great Migration mm-hmm, North. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're the first to go directly to college mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. your family. And I don't I don't want to ask this in some in a in a way that's indelicate, but mm-hmm. uh, if your parents look at you writing mm-hmm. about race and writing about mm-hmm. things like what had just happened in Charlottesville, mm-hmm. did they or would they view that as somehow this this was supposed to be behind us? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, so, I mean, that's a very good question, actually. I often think about this, that like, my life presently would have been inscrutable to my father. Uh-huh. You know, my father had a third grade education, and I've written about that, and uh, he was 50 years old when I was born, and he died when I was 23. And so I was still kind of figuring out who I was and trying to do these things and so on. But the the fact that I write for The New Yorker and I teach at this Ivy League institution and I go across the country speaking on these issues and so on, like that is so wildly different from the way in which he encountered the world. Like I would say he encountered the world at very acute angles and I've encountered the world at more obtuse ones, Hmm. you know? And so I think that because of his background, at least, and because my mother's background, she grew up in Bessemer, Alabama, I I think that they tended to be very much realists about how race works in the United States. And I don't think they would be surprised, you know, that we have these issues, that we continue to have these issues. And so there's a thing about my father that I find fascinating too, like, as an adult, as you get older, you find things that you wish you had thought about so yeah, you could ask your parents. But my father had this kind of bewilderment about race. And I don't think he ever would have framed it in that way. But he was two things. One is that he was a Catholic. You know, He came from a little kind of speck of a town called Hazelhurst, Georgia, uh, and migrated north and converted to Catholicism. Never found out why. You know, why he converted? Uh, why he converted. He never thought to ask. But we were all raised Catholic. Uh-huh. And, you know, he was Catholic and he was a Southerner. And the kind of ethics of those two things clashed because he, I think, tried to embrace the universalism of the Catholic faith. And at the same time, he grew up in segregation and he had seen some horrible things happen. And so he could literally on Monday say, just go by who a person is, not what they look like. You know, character is the most important thing and that's the only thing that you should concern yourself with. And on Tuesday say, never ever underestimate what white people are capable of doing to you in this world. And trying to reconcile those things, mm-hmm. you know? And I don't think to him it was ever like a kind of source of discomfort or anything. It was, I think this paradox, it was just kind of how he had seen the world, how yeah. he had, had lived. And so I think that I've, that's probably part of where I got my interest in writing about these things and trying to maybe look at that riddle that he had bequeathed to me yeah. unwittingly. So you did this frontline documentary, yeah. which I think you wrote and you also appeared in. Yeah, co-wrote. Mm-hmm. Co-wrote. So let's talk a little bit about that because, first of all, what did it feel like to get in front of the camera? It was interesting to <laughs> watch you work, having read so much of your uh-huh. work, and then to sort of like watch you in action, uh-huh. which you don't see with all sort of print yeah. writer journalists. What did that feel like? That was so awkward. <laughs> that was so awkward. If you talk with um, the team from Frontline, I worked you know, mainly with uh, Anya Borg and James Jacoby. Uh, and 
if you talk with them, they will tell you that there was a struggle, like leading a mule, <laughs> kind of dragging it down the road. Because one, I hated hearing my own voice, which you know a lot of people don't yeah. like to hear their own voice. Yeah. But I had to hear my own voice in order to do voiceover and you know, in the editing process and all these things, and it was torture. And then also I didn't like, I don't really like being you know the center of attention, which interestingly enough is a kind of way I think that in some ways our lives are shaped by physically who we are and what we look like, which is that you know I'm six three, I look like a former football player, I'm a large man, and that generates a certain kind of attention, mm-hmm. and I've never wanted that. I've never kind of wanted to stand out in that particular way especially when you're kind of doing work you think like I want to blend into the background as much as possible and in this case I had to do the exact opposite you know I had to kind of be there and the camera had to look at me I had to do things and so it was not my favorite thing but it seemed doubly difficult Mm -hmm. I mean first I'll say I, I think you were good in front of the camera thank you but also it seemed doubly difficult because this is a documentary about police reform police violating civil rights in Newark, mm-hmm. trying to get better in some ways. And you're going on patrol with a gang unit mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in which you are wearing a vest, mm-hmm. you're stepping out of the car, and as far as I can tell, the guy that they're throwing down on the street probably thinks you're thinks a, cop. a cop. And yeah. I wondered how that felt. Like you're trying to, mm-hmm. again, blend into the background to a certain extent, but everyone who's standing around probably just thinks you're a cop, right? Yeah. Yeah, and especially there were some points where, you know, you wondered if that made the situation more dangerous because there was one night, we didn't actually wind up using this footage, but there was one night where the cops did a raid in a housing project, and this was a really notorious housing project in Newark. And I think I was like the third person out of the car and following them, you know, up the stairs and and all this. And then I was kind of like, if somebody decides to take a shot at someone, you know, they'd think... And then physically, I'm the largest person there. I'm the biggest target. And so that was, I think, part of the narrative. But the other thing I think that was interesting about that experience was that we saw and we recorded some things in Newark that were very damning, you know, in terms Mm -hmm. of the police. And people would ask, you know, how did you get that kind of access? How did they let you film this? Mm -hmm. You know, there's one instance where there's a guy who's just walking down the street and I think it's six cops, you know, jump out of the cars and throw them on the ground. That one's really something. Yeah. That scene is. And the reason that we got that kind of candor from them is that people only hide the stuff they think is wrong. And so their version or their idea of good policing was to do things that other people would find horrifying. Mm-hmm. And very many of the viewers did. Uh, but they didn't think of that as wrong. As a matter of fact, when I talked with them after that, they said, we're just out here trying to keep this community safe. And this is what it looks like. But presumably you thought it was horrifying even in the moment. You knew mm-hmm. what you were seeing mm-hmm. was not right. Because also you have the benefit of being outside of it. Yeah. You know, so they they have a kind of closed system there where you're only around people who see the world the same way you do. And at some point you begin to extrapolate that out you know so i guess small version of this was that in college i had this short-lived experience as a vegetarian <laughs> and so i like everybody did i think in college <laughs> uh, but i was around all these people who were vegans and you know we we're kind of critiquing you know the horrors of the meat industry and so on and 
And then I remember at one point realizing that we're really a kind of minority that when you go out to restaurants, there are people eating steak and then really not thinking about you at all. Uh, but there's this whole other world and people have different values. And I think that that happens with police, you know, because especially they believe that nobody else can understand their job. Nobody mm-hmm. can understand what they do. And, and sure enough, the world looks different from the inside of a police car and fundamentally does, mm-hmm. you know, when we were with them for 10 months. And when we'd be driving around and they'd have a call come in and they'd go, you know, flying through the streets trying to find someone, you know, who may have just shot someone or, you know, may have robbed someone or whatever. And you're looking at the city in a way that's very different than the kind of passive way that we tend to interact. And there was another instance where a police car was sent to respond to the most mundane uh, situation you could imagine, which is a neighbor hadn't heard from their elderly neighbor in a few days, Mm. and they were worried. And so they're going, they said, okay, you know, we may have some guy who just, you know, was in his apartment watching TV and, you know, was hard of hearing and didn't hear anyone knock, or uh, maybe he's sick, or, and we need to have an ambulance come and take him. Or, you know, worst case scenario, maybe he had a stroke and, you know, he's deceased in his apartment. And it was the latter, but he had a hammer. I remember the exact terms they use. A hammer impaled in his skull. And the kind of gallows humor you heard from the dispatcher was like, well, that's not natural causes. <laughs> and hmm. um, if you, I think if you encounter the world in that way long enough, it lends itself to the kind of mentality that could without some other kind of check could lead to hopping out of the car, throwing someone on the ground who's just walking home and thinking that this is perfectly acceptable. Mm -hmm. It actually, in a way, I don't know if this is a good parallel, but it sort of reminded me after that one stop, you have this like kind of like on the street discussion or Mm -hmm. outside the police Mm -hmm. station discussion with these cops about what's happened. Mm -hmm. And you're sort of explaining to them, you're saying like, I'm going to be honest with you, like, that made me very uncomfortable mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. that could be me. Mm-hmm. And they're sort of saying, like, we're not trying to violate anyone's yeah. civil rights. Yeah. And it kind of reminded me of people who say, like, I'm not trying to be racist here. Right. And it's <laughs> like right. because they live in a world in which mm-hmm. the thing they said doesn't seem they aren't trying. It's right. not that they're trying. But it's also definitional. So yeah. when they say we're not trying to violate anyone's rights, their conception of your rights is so narrow. Right. That unless they, you know, walk up and shoot you in the chest for no reason, they think that they haven't done anything wrong. Whereas anyone who has a broader sense of what people's rights are are going like, wait, what do you, you just violated this person's rights. <laughs> so he's like, we're not out here trying to violate anyone's rights. Oh, well, we should come to a working understanding of what we mean when we say rights. Mm-hmm. And I think that was why we wound up in there because the ACLU in New Jersey had said, look, what the police are doing here in the name of keeping this community safe is not really consistent with the Constitution. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the other thing I want to talk about from that documentary was journalistically, you spend a lot of time with the mayor mm-hmm. who we discover mm-hmm. you've known since, yeah, since I was 18. Yeah. 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 And I thought it was handled well in the documentary, but what did it feel like to you to like go into this journalistic situation and you've got the mayor of Newark mm-hmm. and he's a friend of yours, but you're mm-hmm. also trying to portray him in mm-hmm. not objectively, but in a way that's in line with what the documentary is trying to accomplish. Yeah, so I had two conversations. One, 
in which I told Frontline very early in the process. I said, you know, uh, this person is a friend of mine, and I don't know if that means you don't want to do the project with me or not, but one thing is that I won't participate in a hit piece. Like, if we're just going to kind of say we're going to trash this person, I don't want to be involved in that. But I also said to him, the mayor, I said, you know, you're one of my oldest friends, but if we find something filthy, we're going to say that we found something filthy. Mm-hmm. And he said, I think you should, you know, you should tell the truth. And so it was fortunate in that I was kind of in the middle between these two forces and you know, they both at least went into it saying that they would be professional about it. Afterward, I think the police in Newark were not happy mm-hmm. um, with the film, but there were things that we showed that they thought were not balanced. And we actually tried really hard to be balanced. We spent the second half of the um, documentary following a, a cop who was really a exemplary officer. Like, you would want a police force full of people like him. His name, not ironically, was Sergeant Peppers, you know? <laughs> and so, but this is a guy who, who was smart, was tough, but deeply invested, deeply cared about the community that he was policing. And even in some situations where he handled things with a degree of, I guess, calm and equanimity that I don't know that I could have been as calm in, you know, where... Yeah. He was investigating a homicide, and he was trying to uh, make an arrest before there was a retaliatory homicide. And he said, I need to make an arrest. And then when he's kind of there trying to investigate to find out what exactly is going on, he's getting cursed at and, you know, called every name under the sun. And and he was really trying to ultimately save lives in that community Mm -hmm. and saying, like, I want to get this guy off the street before somebody comes and does something to one of you all uh, in the name of revenge. Yeah, well, it just goes to show that everyone's definition of balance is also yeah, that's right, uh, it's, somewhat it's right. fungible. It's right, exactly. <laughs> you know, I think that very often people's idea of balance is what we call PR. Right. <laughs> so that was a very, I mean, that was a big project. Mm-hmm. And how do you decide, more specifically, when it comes to New Yorker writing? You're doing a lot of web pieces mm-hmm. where you're taking on the issues that are happening today, whether mm-hmm. it's Trump or some other issue, mm-hmm. something in the news, basically and writing sort of short essays Mm -hmm. on it. And then what makes you decide or what results in you going down a longer reporting road? Um, Most of the time it's been, uh, the longer pieces have been outgrowths of the shorter pieces. Mm. Uh, So the Jamaica High School one was a expansion of something I wrote about the anniversary of Brown versus Board of Education and how the kind of ethic of integration has not, carried through and kind of died on the vine mm-hmm. uh, and and so that was where that piece came from I decided to look at one school and kind of follow through some of the things that I'd seen in the shorter piece and which then, happened to be the school that you had gone to, to the which school that I'd gone to was yeah, head that was closing, closing yeah and the piece on Black Lives Matter was an outgrowth of me writing in Ferguson and you know what I'd seen there and yeah so that's been mostly like how I've gone deeper I'm now writing a, a long form piece about Howard and mm. you, know, you know about the president, the current president, and what he's attempting to do. Hmm. So it doesn't require a whole lot of heavy lifting to figure <laughs> out how that one came up. And, and was he was he one of the presidents that went to Trump's? He was to um, the White House. He was, and uh, not to give too much away, but a couple of days within a couple of days of him going to that meeting at the White House, 
Uh, there was graffiti, you know, sprayed on canvas that said, "Welcome to the Trump Plantation." Uh, yeah, I yeah, think that yeah. got a little news. Yeah, yeah, and it said yeah. he's president's name, Wayne Wayne Frederick, and the the graffiti said, uh, "Welcome to the Trump Plantation, Wayne Frederick Overseer," and it was really a sharp thing to say in response to it. But I think a lot of the faculty, or rather, a lot of the leadership that went to that. White House meetings suffered backlashes on their campuses when they came back mm-hmm. because obviously Donald Trump is not particularly popular among African Americans. How does teaching fit? In? I mean, I'm mm-hmm. asking you variations of questions on like, how do you have time for all this? Mm-hmm. But now you're teaching at Columbia. Uh-huh. How does it fit into doing this work? Like, what does your day look like? <laughs> Honestly, um, it's not that difficult because what I've been teaching a long time and like, I know what I have to prioritize and so on. And I kind of map out in the semester like what I need to do when and what times ideally I'll be writing. So a lot of times with the New Yorker, my stuff uh, that I do is on the weekends or I'll write on a Friday uh, when there's not a whole lot that's going on on campus. And you kind of and then the longer pieces have been written over the summer. Mm. Uh, uh, and so it's just kind of like maximizing time. But the classroom is important. I know it sounds like a cliche and everything, but it's like really you know, my favorite place because you interact with these young minds that have, you know, lots of ideas that some of them are really, you know, great and, you know, need some cultivation. Some of them are kind of not, you know, and you kind of steer them, you know, away from that. And But the other kind of beneficial thing is that I've been teaching long enough that I have a good crop of my former students who are now colleagues. Mm. And I always like love interacting with them, you know, in the professional context where we're now peers. Uh, as a matter of fact, I had to call one of my former students as a to call in a favor because uh, he was a chief of staff for a congressional uh, rep and who I wanted to interview. And so I was like, hey, can you get me on the phone with the congresswoman? And it's so, a good network to have. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that's been a good thing to see is these young people uh, emerging and, you know, you helping kind of guide them and then them hitting the ground and running and going as far as they can go. Mm-hmm. If you look at the work you're doing now and then you look back, I mean, you wrote a book about Obama that came out in 2010. Mm-hmm. And... Do you feel It'd like a very different book now? <laughs> no, that was that's sort of my question. Or do you think there were questions in that book that you now have answers to? Mm-hmm. Or do you think that you actually look at all of that differently than you did then? Uh, I don't look at it differently. I, I maybe look at it more fully. And I, I, if I could go back, I probably would change some things about the book where I include more of my fears, more of my skepticism about how this might play itself out. Mm-hmm. But there were conversations I had in 2007, even 2008, uh, as we were nearing the election, about what the backlash to this might look like. And it does not require a crystal ball. You do not have to have some talent at forecasting to understand you know, how American politics played out in the past year. Uh, because it so neatly conforms to how American politics have played out in the past 200 years that we've seen, especially around matters of race Mm -hmm. uh, and the perceived threat inside of the idea of racial progress. And so I was talking with a friend of mine in 2008, like very shortly after the election, when everyone was euphoric and we were talking about this new moment and having turned this page in American history. And 
And he said, you know, the Voting Rights Act is gone. And I said, yeah, you're probably right. And sure enough, in 2013, we saw in that Shelby case that the Supreme Court essentially gutted the Voting Rights Act Mm -hmm. and cited the election of Barack Obama in doing it and saying that we no longer needed those protections. Now, of course, from my perspective, this was akin to saying, wow, drunk driving has really plummeted. We don't need those laws anymore. (laughs) You know? But you knew it was going to go that way. Um, you knew it was going to go that way. And, you know, it wasn't surprising, but at the same time, it was disheartening. Yeah. And you knew that there was going to be a backlash where people saw this movement forward as having come at their expense. And most of the time, I tried to not engage. Well, you know, it's easier. The New Yorker got rid of its comment section. But I said I was trying to not engage with people who comment. But when people email, this person emailed me, I thought it was worth looking at and I'd written something about immigration recently and he said the right is really alarmed by all these people coming from Latin America but let's be honest the left would be equally alarmed if uh, this many white people were coming from Europe and I said no we really wouldn't but I think he conceived of this as dueling prejudices Mm -hmm. like we're sticking up for the people of color and we're really looking to stick it to the white people and I was like, no, this is a fundamental misperception. And this guy wasn't buying it. He was just like, no, you all uh, want to get rid of the white people. And so or I guess even a more salient example of this is when uh, you saw people marching in Charlottesville at the Unite the Right rally. And they were chanting, you will not replace us. And I was kind of like, it's not on anybody's to-do list to replace you. Like, that is not the objective or the agenda. But I understand the kind of projection, maybe you think that. You know, it's Mm -hmm. kind of like the cheating husband who wonders why his wife is five minutes late coming home from work. You know, it's like, well, this is more about your conscience than it is about anything else. And so knowing that those dynamics were present in American history and have been present in American history for a really long time, was it surprising that we saw the kind of racialist populism that took root in 2015, 2016? No, not really. The one that really got me recently was not just the Trump reaction to Charlottesville, but that in that speech, he literally said, our heritage. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I grew up in the South. Mm-hmm. Decades of these disputes over the Confederate battle flag, all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Everyone knows what that's all about. Mm-hmm. Everyone who pays attention, who's mm-hmm. a thinking person, knows what it's really about. Mm-hmm. And they, you have it over and over and over again. But the idea that some guy from Queens, mm-hmm. who is now the president of the United States, mm-hmm. would stand up and say, our heritage, I found myself surprised in a way that we're not supposed to be surprised anymore. But I thought, like, that is out of this world. Like, that I, is, you I couldn't make that shit up. I wasn't surprised. And let me tell you what it reminded me of. You know, in Birth of a Nation film in 1915, most of the time we talk about that film as a kind of classic distillation of American racism Mm -hmm. and of the moment of 1915. But we don't really talk about what he was predicting. We think about it, you know, of him looking backward and lionizing the Ku Klux Klan. But he was really looking forward. D.W. Griffith was looking forward. Uh, And we said Birth of a Nation, it was a proposition that white Northerners and white Southerners 
could reconcile. They could cement the the broken bonds that uh, and the lingering fracture from the Civil War. And the common adhesive would be their mutual contempt for black people. Mm-hmm. And that's what he's proposing. To see a guy from Queens get the kind of reception he got when he had that rally, the early rally in Montgomery, I said, no, Griffith was right. He was predicting how this would work. And this wasn't the only time that you could go. You could kind of go in the 50s and 60s, 70s. And we saw those riots in Boston in the 70s about school integration. You could look at many instances and say, okay, well, Griffith was pretty much onto something here. Mm-hmm. And then in addition to that, there's a very peculiar quirk about Queens. And I've had this conversation with lots of Queens people that it made it almost predictable that someone like Trump would emerge from Queens. And if you remember that character Archie Bunker from the mm-hmm. 70s, sure. who was uh, the kind of lovable bigot, but you know, most basic level was a working class white guy in Queens who was very much bewildered by the changes in the world around him. And he, he was an expression of the resentments and anxieties that people like him felt. And when Norman Lear created that character, he was kind of talking about him uh, as a man who was becoming a relic. But he wasn't a relic. He was actually a harbinger and wrote about you know that. Then what was happening in Queens during the time that that show was on, the thing that Norman Lear was referencing in that program was that Queens went from being in the 50s and mid-60s the whitest borough in New York City mm-hmm. um, because it's kind of an internal suburb. And when Jackie Robinson, who was playing for the Dodgers, bought a home in Queens uh, in the early 1950s, there was a cross burned. Uh, just kind of say they, they didn't want him in that neighborhood, uh, and that you know LaGuardia Airport was uh, segregated, and so, and this is in Queens. It was white enclave. When I came along, and I was born in '69, I remember as a small child there being areas of Queens that were mostly all white. Mm-hmm. But what happened rapidly between the 1965 Immigration Act, uh, which liberalized American immigration and allowed people from all over the globe to come here. Uh, what happened between 65 and really 80 is that Queens diversified at a much quicker pace than anywhere, even at a much quicker pace than the rest of New York City. So that county went from being the whitest part of New York City to being what it is now, statistically, the most diverse community, the most diverse county in the United States. And th- this was in your Jamaica High piece. This some is of this, Jamaica some High of this piece. is yeah. in there too, yeah. And so that rapid turnover, there was a generation of white people in Queens that never recovered. Mm. And the kind of anxiety that they have about the browning of America, what we saw manifest itself in the electorate in 2016, this broad concern about who are these people, where are they coming from, are they they not like us, or you know what are their values and so on. White people in Queens had been kind of expressing those sort of ideas four decades earlier. Mm-hmm. And they found a candidate who perfectly embodied those resentments. So it is his heritage. It is. <laughs> it is. So uh, this takes me back to something we talked about at the beginning, which is, I mean, you obviously like have a command of this. I mean, that in particular, because you grew up in Queens, mm-hmm. and know a lot about it, but of the historical perspective, like mm-hmm. you just gave like a two hour lecture at the New York Public Library about mm-hmm. the history of all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Does that leave you? I mean, is it exhausting to see it happen over and over again? Is it um, emotionally exhausting? 
sometimes. To write about it? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, sometimes it is, honestly. But I also feel like, I feel like, you know, I was educated for a reason. Uh, that was what I got from Howard, that it was very much a, an ethic of, it's not enough for you to be smart. It's not enough for you to be talented. You have to take your intelligence and take your talent and put it to work in the service of creating a better world. And that was an, an overarching ethic. And uh, I guess at the risk of being maudlin, it was like what my parents wanted from me, you know, in my life. And when I think about what I, the kind of difficulties that I have to confront, they're smaller than the difficulties that they had to confront. So I don't, in some ways, have a right to feel that way. Um, but it's not fun. And it's it's frustrating uh, and, and difficult. I think it is for like many or all of us. Uh, I think of people who, of conscience who who believe in you know the possibility of democracy. And how do you feel in this era about being able to push things in a positive direction through the work? Mm-hmm. I just do my best and hope that it makes some difference. You know, uh, I ran into a guy in the subway. Uh, when I was coming here, actually, and I was actually coming up the steps, and the guy was like, "Hey, man, I love your work. You know, keep it up." And I was like, "Oh, all right, thank you." And um, I think that means something to me, and I hope that in some way, you know, shape or form, I look back at like every generation in which there were, you know, was real, you know, social change. They're generally people who had access to a platform somewhere that were talking about those things, that were trying to inform the public, you know, about what was going on, you know, or, you know, the civil rights era and, you know, the the role that journalism played in that. And David Halberstam talking about how much he was impacted as a young journalist in Tennessee. And it turned that informed the rest of his career, really, in the work that he did. And, and so I think there have been, you know, people who, kind of stood up to try to inform people. And Ida B. Wells, mm-hmm. W.B. Du Bois. I just want to be in that tradition to the best of my ability. Well, Jelani, thank you for coming on the podcast. Mm-hmm. really appreciate it. Thank you. That's it for this week's Long Form Podcast. Thank you, Jelani Cobb, for coming in. I'm Evan Ratliff, your co-host from Atavist. My fellow co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from Long Form. Thanks to our editor this week, Janelle Pfeiffer, and to our intern, Angela Velez. Thanks also to our sponsors, MailChimp, Quip, and Audible. We will see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.